Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California, as uh, usual. And uh, before we begin today, I want to remind you again that there is a website associated with this show called wealthformula.com. You can go there to get all the resources that you can't get just by listening uh, or watching as you might be doing on YouTube as well. There are lots of resources there at uh, wealthformula.com, including some downloads that you might think are useful, uh, some books and things like that. But also it's an opportunity to sign up for some of our lists, including our accredited investor club, uh, which is, uh, you know, if you're an accredited investor and you're interested in, uh, you know, getting some money off the sidelines, that's the way you may want to go. Uh, check it out for yourself. Go to wealthformula.com, sign up for Investor Club there, and uh, go through our onboarding process, and you will be in. Today, I want to talk to you um, a little bit about, you know, going back, I guess, to some of our major themes on the economy. You know, when I think about all that's happened in the economy over the last two decades, it's pretty amazing, right? I mean, uh, national debt's gone up by five times, basically, you know, even in like the, uh, the, the, during the meltdown itself, there was uh, an increase in debt that was equal to the total amount of debt uh, that had incurred up to that point in history of our country. Uh, interest rates hovered, you know, nearly zero. They're still really low, but for multiple years, went through multiple shocks of the system. Like again, the 2008 meltdown, as I mentioned, of course, COVID, unprecedented stuff. And again, all of that in two decades, less than two decades. It's kind of crazy, right? This week's Wealth Formula podcast guest uh, is a guy by the name of Thomas Vartanian. Now, Mr. Vartanian has seen a heck of a lot more than me. Uh, he was in the Reagan administration at a time when Paul Volcker used significant interest rates to bring down uh, hyperinflation that we saw in those days. And he was also deeply uh, involved in the response to the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s as well. I mean, frankly, m many people might not even know what the savings and loan crisis was. And, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's a great history lesson, so to speak. And I think you need to understand these things to understand, you know, how to avoid 
problems in the future. And that's uh, that's a great value, I think, that uh, Thomas Vartanian offers. And he's got a new book out, too, which might, might be worth picking up. It's called 200 Years of Financial Panics, Crashes, Recessions, Depressions, and the Technology That Will Change It All. And uh, it really captures all the major themes of American uh, economic history. So without further ado, uh, when we come back, Thomas Vartanian. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is uh, Thomas Vartanian. Thomas is the Executive Director of the Financial Technology and Cybersecurity Center uh, and author financial services advisor, expert witness, academic, and a board, mentor, a board mentor. He is a former executive director of the Program on Financial Regulation and Technology at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School, where he was also a professor of law. Uh, Mr. Vartinian also served in the Reagan administration during the SNL crisis uh, as general counsel of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, and the FSLIC. He's also the author of 200 Years of Financial Panics, Crashes, and Recessions, Depressions, and the Technology That Will Change It All. So fantastic uh, resume here. Uh, Mr. Vartanian, thank you for coming on to our show. Oh, thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, I'm particularly um, interested in... The fact that you uh, you were part of the Reagan administration during the SNL crisis, uh, during presumably the Paul Volcker days, and uh, you know I don't know maybe it was uh, during hyperinflation or, or maybe as a part of the panacea for that. But what kinds of similarities are you seeing right now uh, in the uh, in our environment or not that are resulting in the higher inflation? Yeah, this, that's a great question, Buck, because the similarities are um, are numerous. And l- let me just set the stage a little bit. So 
when I was uh, sworn in as general counsel of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board and the FSLIC, which are the two agencies that regulate all the savings and loans in the country, uh, the then six six month inch, uh, T bill rate was at fourteen point five percent. Inflation was at twelve percent. The thirty year T bill eventually went uh, within the next year to twenty one percent, which is the top point it 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 reached, and inflation went to fifteen or sixteen percent. So we were in an enormously difficult financial environment. Over the next uh, ten years more than 3,000 banks and savings and loans had failed. And when I was sworn in, uh, I can remember this very vividly. I got a briefing from the head of supervision of the savings and loans uh, division of supervision at the agency. And he came in and he told me that within 24 months, all 4,500 savings and loans in the country would fail. Now, the, 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 you know, for a 31 year old lawyer, that's a, <laughs> it's a pretty tough pill to swallow because I thought this is going to be a great job. I didn't realize it was going to be a uh, combat pay. So, uh, but you start thinking about that and you ask yourself the question that I think you're getting at. And that is, how does the whole industry fail at one time? The story that was circulating was fraud, criminality, and negligence. The Congress was after everybody because they were misusing their their offices. But that's not what caused the failure of the savings and loan industry. That was the cover story. What caused the failure of the savings and loan industry is what's causing most of the financial distress we're seeing today. And that was constant abuse of the economy by policymakers, particularly politicians. Constant spending, constant policy changes, trying to make the economy do things it didn't want to do. And at that point, what became very clear to me after being in that job for a while is what happened was that 20 years of abuse of the economy caused the savings and loan crisis. So, for example, you go back to 1966, Congress passed a law it said savings and loans could not pay more than 5.5% to their depositors. Now, why would they do that? They did that because they wanted to subsidize home borrowers. If the institutions didn't have to pay a high rate, they could lend it out at a lower rate uh-huh. and therefore subsidize housing in America. Which in, was the, in what year was that? That was 1966 when oh, okay. Congress passed that law. Okay. All right. Uh-huh. And so, look, that, that's a good thing, right? It's, it's, it's not venal. It's not something bad. It's we want to increase housing. But the fact of the matter is, is that it, it did it in a way that tried to force the economy into a, into a position it couldn't be in. Because when Jimmy Carter was ending his, his term of office, what happened? What happened is interest rates and inflation went through the sky. And so, Depositors said, well, why should I put my money with a savings alone at five and a half when I can get 12 from a money market fund, right? And, and, and the 30 year fixed rate interest rate mortgages that were on the books of those savings alone at 7%, yielding 7%, were now worth 50 cents on the dollar in a 15% rate environment, right? So you couldn't sell those mortgages and you couldn't get new liquidity. And that essentially, uh, was the reason why the savings and loan industry failed 15 or 20 years later. And it took that long for those boneheaded decisions to sort of ripen in the marketplace. And as market 
uh, events changed, they effectively put an entire industry in a position where it could not survive. And, and so that was sort of the reason I wrote the book. Uh, and I've been sort of thinking about this for 45 years, because you have to ask yourself the following question. If you've been involved in this and you've seen what happened, and that is, if that happened once, could it have happened other times with all the financial crises that this country has had over its 200-year period? Sure. So what do you see now as parallels of, of some of that limitations on or low interest rates, obviously, but uh, that's more of a symptom more than anything else. That's not something we had back in the 80s. But w- w- talk a little bit more about the similarities, what you're seeing, uh, and if we could drill down on that and just try to see if there's, I'm just trying to understand if there's some things we can learn from that situation, you know, other than the fact that a lot of it was just self-inflicted, iatrogenic, you know, congressional type of uh, behavior. Yeah. So let me, let me give you some, some examples of what I characterize as abuse of the economy. So uh, the, the, the national debt is, is probably the most prominent you know, evidence of what we're doing to ourselves. National debt in, in 2010 was something about $6 trillion. It's now $30 trillion, right? So we're just spending money we don't have, our children won't have, and our grandchildren won't have to be able to repay. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, let me give you an example of what, what happened with the Fed, because the Fed has been the instrument that the government's been using to sort of drive this manipulated economy. In 2008, before the 2008 financial crisis began, the Fed's balance sheet was $800 billion. It was an $800 billion balance sheet. That's a pretty big balance sheet, right? Fed's balance sheet today is $9 trillion. What does that mean? That means between 2008 and uh, 2022, the Fed essentially printed $8 trillion of money. Now, you can't print $8 trillion of money, throw it into the economy, and think we won't have inflation at some point down the line. But to make it even worse, what's going on here is the Fed was printing the money to finance the United States government. So they were printing the money, buying treasury notes. They were then getting the interest on those treasury notes paid by the treasury and taking that interest and paying it back to the treasury. Now, that doesn't look to me like a real economy, you know, functioning on with, with real economic factors. That's a manipulated economy created to sort of deal with the problems we're having in a circuitous way rather than a direct way. And so the combination of the 2008 crisis, the COVID crisis, has just put us in a position where it's easier to print money and to ignore the problems and try to throw money at them. But eventually we know, eventually we know that's going to come back to bite us. And it's now coming back to bite us because eventually, and, and what I say in my book, which is probably the greatest revelation I came to after reading about the last 200 years, is that every crisis is caused by a triggering event no one anticipated that sucks the confidence out of the market. And once this confidence is gone, that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think... Um you know, uh, I'm, I'm curious when, when you're talking about printing money, you know, I think uh, I feel like part of the um, part of the reason that the uh, that we ended up printing up as much money as we did during COVID 
was in part because that there was a tremendous amount of money printing and uh, and quantitative easing uh, during the financial crisis that did not seem to trigger uh, a lot of the inflationary activity that we're seeing now. What do you think the difference, what's the big difference? I mean, like we, it's not like there wasn't a ton of new money then, but it didn't create the kind of inflation that we're seeing now. Yeah. yeah. And, and as a corollary to that, the question is, should have, you know, Chairman uh, Powell or Janet Yellen have seen this uh, coming? So that's, that's where we get back to the analog with the savings and loan crisis. It's always something you didn't anticipate which changes the dynamics and then destroys the best intentions that you had economically of manufacturing and managing the economy. So in this case, I think what what was the break point was COVID because COVID changed the economic functioning of the country, changed the economic supply lines and global supply lines around the world. And once that started happening, the normal economics started to react differently. Right. And we had shortages. We had people not working. We had people not being able to find work and, and all kinds of different things. Those were the breakpoints that created differences in supply and demand that then started to expose all of these other abuses that have been, you know, been thrown at the economy over the last 10, 20 years to, to, to basically come home to roost. And I think that's the same sort of thing over and over again. There's an unanticipated event that happens that causes the economic pain to, to bubble up to the top. So uh, I'm, sh- I'm sure you don't spend a lot of time on Twitter wasting your time here, but one of the, <laughs> one of the, uh, uh, one of the quotes uh, or one of, one of the tweets that I, I thought was of interest was uh, from a guy by the name of Michael Burry, uh, who is, uh, I guess he was made famous from the big short movie. He was the physician and uh, you know, shorted the economy and, and mm-hmm. financial crisis. Um, he he tweeted uh, something to the effect of um, that that he felt like there is a potential for what's called a uh, what he's calling a bullwhip effect um, from a glut in supply um, and deflationary effects of retailers holding too much inventory and therefore uh, his thought it or, or he's conjecturing. Uh, that there there may be a change uh, sooner rather than later in direction from the Fed. Do you, what do you think of that? Uh, you know, I'll tell you, I, I've, I've represented hedge funds, investment banks, and, and commercial banks for, for 40 years while I was in private practice after the government. And I've worked with, I think, what, what many people would call some of the smartest financial minds in America. And the one thing I've learned is that nobody knows where we're going, <laughs> yeah. right? And, and once you try to predict where we're going, you're always going to be wrong. Because, and, and the reason for that is we live in the most complex economic environment in the world with more interrelationships and more dynamics affecting each other that it's impossible to calculate where we're going. So what I try to do is I try to keep my eye on the main trend lines, right? Where's confidence going? Is it up or is it down? Where are interest rates going? Are they going up or are they going down? Right. Where's the money supply? Is it going up? Is it going down? What's the Fed doing? That's the kind of thing you, you can watch and you can sort of take some action off of. But uh, I, I don't really I can't really guess, you know, whether or not, you know, we're heading towards stagflation, greater inflation or whatever. 
all I know is the economy is in distress and it's sort of spiraling. Do you right? think we're already in a recession right now? Uh, I don't think we're uh, technically in a recession, but I think we're, we're I think we're in a confidence recession. I actually believe that it is a recession in confidence of the consumer and of people in general in in the economy. In terms of uh, the other question I have for you is with regard to rates, um, how high can they go? So I've I've read various articles. I've heard, talked to various people about this. That there is sort of a a ceiling. Uh, given the amount of debt, um, uh, the national debt uh, and paying debt, uh, I've, I've heard that there's, you know, some people argue that there's sort of a ceiling on that. Is is that nonsense? Because you can just print as much money as you want and create as much, you know, pay, pay back as much as you want. Or is there some truth to that? Yeah, well, you know, you've got the, the clash of a lot of different theories here, modern, you know, monetary yeah, theory yeah. and right. classic classic uh, Volcarism and things like that. But, uh, look, I, rates left to their own purposes can go as high as the economy and, and circumstances drive. As I say, uh, I was general counsel of, of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, and when interest rates hit 21%, and, you know, I asked myself today why I didn't buy 30-year T-bills at 21%. And you know what the answer was, Buck? The answer was that interest rates were moving 100 to 200 basis points a day. So you never wanted to plunk down the money to make an investment because the market would move so dramatically in just 24 hours. Right? You, just, you can't imagine the market moving 200 basis points in one day in today's environment. So interest rates can go... Uh, can go to 20%, There's, you know, but I don't think they will. But here's, here's the real issue I think you're getting at and that theory is getting at, and that is as interest rates increase, so does the national debt because what's happening is the Treasury is rolling off its old financings at 0% or 1% and having, to pay dep- and having to pay new investors and new debenture buyers 2 or 3 or 5 or 6%. Now, if, if you triple the national debt, we're talking about $90 trillion. And that could happen if rates triple, right? Over some period of time, the Treasury has got to refinance its book of business and all of its debt, and it's got to do it at higher rates. So, yeah, there, there's, a, there's a sort of a break point there where you get to a point and you say, look, we're, we're talking about the collapse of the economy, not how high interest rates can go. Right. Right. And, and I, I guess that's ultimately sort of the question is like, how high could they go without, you know, complete destruction of the economy and, and some reversal there? Um, do you think that the in, inflation that we're seeing now, you know, obviously it wasn't transitory the way that uh, Powell called it before, before the Fed called it before. But is there is there reason to believe just because of supply chain things? I mean, uh, you know, notwithstanding what Barry had to say, that some of this uh, organically should slow down uh, on its own? Yeah, I think, uh, look, and I, I think it's a function of rebuilding confidence in the economy. Um, I think the supply chain, you know, I have no idea how long it's going to take to work out the supply chain problems. And I think we're all sort of caught short and surprised by the fact that we had those supply chain problems. But that's going to work itself out eventually. I mean, I think we understand that. Uh, the Fed's going to raise rates gently over some period of time. I don't think we're going to get to 21%, but 
but uh, the Fed's going to raise rates and that's going to have an impact. Uh, and I think then the question becomes, are there other, other anticipated events that occur that sort of get in the way of the recovery? And let me give you an example of going back to 2008, because 2008 is, is the most recent and vivid experiences that we've had. And I lived through that as a lawyer representing a lot of companies, a lot of large financial institutions from Merrill Lynch on down that were having all kinds of problems. And what happened there is, is pretty instructive in terms of understanding financial crisis. What happened was the default rate in subprime mortgages started to rise as uh, the, the real estate market started to disintegrate, right? And once those subprime mortgages started to default at a greater rate, the investors in the marketplace, the mortgage-backed securities that had been created from those subprime mortgages, didn't see their investment return coming in. And, and so what happened is very interesting. There weren't enough subprime mortgages made to cause the global economic crisis that resulted. So how did it happen? What happened is the market lost confidence in the balance sheet of financial institutions. And for some period of time, there wasn't an asset on the balance sheet of a financial institution that was worth anything, right? So it wasn't just subprime mortgages. It was the balance sheet now that was in question. And until that confidence could re be, be rebuilt, and how was it rebuilt? It was rebuilt by the government saying two things. Number one, we're raising capital requirements to protect the shareholders and the government. And number two, we're going to require stress tests that will tell us how much capital these financial institutions need to offset their bad assets. And it was those kinds of actions and interventions by the government that built back the confidence in the system and therefore reestablished the value of those assets on the balance sheet. But it started with the, with the deterioration of a subprime asset, which by itself wasn't large enough to cause the global economic crisis that we ended up with. I know uh, uh, you'd written a little bit and done interviews about um, when you were interviewed, I guess, as a, as a potential vice chair for the Fed. And uh, I'm, the funny thing was that I think that your, your comment was effectively that as soon as they kind of knew what you would want to do with the rates. Um, you wouldn't get the job, or something to that effect. Well, you know what, what I've what I've said is, uh, you know, I spent I spent ninety minutes in the White House on March fifteenth, two thousand seventeen, interviewing with Gary Cohen and 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 Steve Mnuchin, who I'd known from working on his deal where he ended up buying a bank, um, and I laid out a pretty aggressive program to restructure financial regulation, to make it more effective, more relevant to today's economy, uh, and safer and sounder. And I got the impression that between that and my answer to Gary Cohn's question about what I would do with interest rates in 2017, and that was to let them rise so that the Fed would have some tools to use in the next financial crisis, that there wouldn't be any political will on part of the administration to, to, to undertake that agenda. And at this point in my life, having been in the government twice already and, and been in financial services 45 years, if I couldn't make those changes to improve the financial system and make it safer for consumers and taxpayers in this country, 
I didn't want to do the job. Yeah. And I don't think they wanted me to do yeah. that job either. Right. So, right, right. so we sort of had a meeting of the minds uh, at that point. Does but, it make you look back, though, uh, Thomas, on, on what it was like working, uh, you know, in an administration in a time where you were dealing with, you know, uh, the likes of Paul Volcker and, and uh, I'm, I'm just curious if you can contrast the time period and the, um, yeah, you know the just 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 what you were working with, what regulators were working with it. Now it just seems like there's no real will on any side to stick to any principles of uh, you know economic um, responsibility uh, from from any party really. And is that different? Yeah. You know, Buck, I've been asked that question a lot, and I, and I have a a distinct answer to that based on my recollections. In May of 1981, uh, the chairman of my agency and I went over to see Paul Volcker and his general counsel, and with the specific request that Paul open up the discount window to savings and loans because they were running out of liquidity. And so they would have to borrow from the Fed to maintain their liquidity, or they just fall off the edge of the table. And that would have been catastrophic to the housing industry, which would have been catastrophic to the economy, because savings and loans were the principal lenders uh, to the housing industry to house America. I mean, commercial banks didn't make uh, mortgage loans at that time. And so we went over there to, to uh, ask him to open the discount window. We had a series of meetings over at the Fed in his office. And, you know, I, I, I was impressed by the fact that he was so troubled, so just involved in the issues. You could see the strain and the stress on his face. And he told us what he was going to do. And he told us he was going to raise rates because the most important thing was to stop the inflation from annihilating the economy. But he was also telling us <laughs> in his own way that it was going to be a tough ride for the savings and loan industry, given that increase in the rates. And I've thought about that. And I've thought about the impressions I gathered from that whole experience. And I said to myself, you know, the problem has been that the financial services regulatory system, the oversight, the monetary control has become too politicized since then. I never heard a word of politics. I never smelled a whiff of political uh, red or blue rules when I was in the government in the 1980s. I never thought for a moment that people like Paul Volcker or my chairman, Richard Pratt, thought about anything that but other than what was the best thing for the country, and they decided what it was, and they did it. The problem we have today, I think, is that financial regulation is getting politicized. And the problem with that is, frankly, that money is green. It's not red or blue. And you can't force it to be red and blue. And every time you try to force it to adhere to a red or blue policy, you're forcing out of its, its, its natural habitat you're distorting the market, and every time the market gets distorted, it blows up at some point in time. And that's the change, the main change I see that it's occurred. Um, your book is called 200 Years of Financial Panics, Crashes, Recessions, Depressions, and the Technology That Will Change It All. Now, I'm curious, what's the technology that will change it all? So, um, you know, I've, I've been asked a lot about, I, I've spent a lot of time in my career on financial technology. I constructed websites from a lot of the major banks in the late 90s when the internet explosion happened. And I worked on a lot of breaches of websites and things like that. And 
we were all captured at that time. And I think we're all captured today and mesmerized by technology. And what I mean by that is everybody looks at technology in terms of what it can do to make it more convenient, to make it more profitable, to make everything life more efficient and effective. And what we're missing and what we're being mesmerized about is the fact that we are creating vulnerabilities and insecurities in what we're doing twice as fast as we're creating the solutions. So you can't, you can't look outside today and not be concerned about the solar winds problems and all of those hacks and all that ransomware and electric grids going down and not think that, that we've got a real problem here. And so I, I've reached a few conclusions. Number one, that we're not focusing on the security side of technology enough. Number two, that regulators aren't using technology to regulate technology. So, for example, let me give you an example, uh, because this is very clear in my mind from when I was a regulator. Uh, the oversight of the financial services business in America is done in the rearview mirror. We look at where they've been, we criticize what they've done, and we say, don't do that again or do it this way in the future. There is very little forward thinking, very little forward viewing, and very little predictive judgments going on about the economy or where financial institutions are going to be, right? And to do that, we could do it easily with technology, artificial intelligence. I mean, if I was sitting there as a regulator today and I could run an algorithm that would give me the five most likely predictive financial scenarios that banks were gonna to have to deal with over the next five years, I think I could be a much more effective regulator than I was guessing, you know? And, and so what I mean by that is, the regulators have to use algorithms to regulate algorithms. You can't be regulating the financial services business in the rearview mirror anymore. We live in a real-time economy, right? We want to know what's going on today and what's going to go on tomorrow. But the regulatory system that was set up in the 1930s was set up to look at where we've been. And so that change has to occur in both the regulatory structure and the regulators have to be armed with the money to buy the kinds of intelligence and buy the kinds of technology that will make them more effective. Uh, is there any uh, any movement there? Are you seeing any promise of any additional technologies in that way? It is it is glacial, Buck. Absolutely glacial. The, the best that I can say is as a result of the Dodd-Frank Act in 2010, um, we ended up with stress testing, which runs models about the future and therefore requires banks to have uh, certain amounts of capital uh, to meet those models. But the models uh, and the assumptions are the secret of the Fed, right? And, uh, and who knows what technology they're using to run those models uh, and how they're coming about. So, but that's the best we're doing in terms of technology. But look, we all know we're living in an in a, in a enormously technologically enabled environment. Look what's going on in the crypto market, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, how can you regulate those kinds of elements without using the same kind of technology that's being used by them? You can't. Right. Absolutely. So the, uh, the book again is 200 years of financial panics, crashes, recessions, depressions, and the technology that will change it all. Uh, Thomas Vartanian, uh, Thomas, the, the book is, uh, is available now. It's available now. It's on Amazon and all online booksellers. If you, uh, interested in this kind of uh, analysis of the history of, of where we've been only because it tells us where we're going, pick up the book. 
Fantastic. It sounds like a very good uh, read for many of our uh, listeners. Thank you so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast. Buck, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, what I find striking about the conversation with uh, Mr. Vartanian was that, you know, it's 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 kind of crazy to me about, you know, the influence on politics uh, on our economy now. And it seems very, very dangerous, right? Um, the story about basically him going uh, to, to interview uh, for potential vice chair uh, position and really, you know, not being on the same page as the government, what they wanted to have happen, which was to keep rates low. Um, and I think is a very striking example. And by the way, I should point out, I'm not saying that, you know, it's uh, it's one party or the other. I think it's, uh, it's just, um, you know, what the, the, the Fed and uh, the Fed is not supposed to be part of the federal government right like it's not supposed to be working you it's supposed to do what it thinks is right uh for the economy and um from the sounds of it that's um that gets really sticky when you know politicians are the ones who are are deciding who gets to be in that fed role at any rate interesting stuff hope you hope you enjoyed it and uh pick up uh, mr vartanian's book that's it for me this week on wealth formula podcast this is buck joffrey signing off Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.